Welcome to Oslo International Church's podcast, where we share weekly reflections from our community of faith. If you'd like to explore more of our resources or join us for a service, visit our website at oslointernational.church. And now, here's the message from our last Sunday service with Pastor Mike on Stornagel. Can, can, we just, can we just agree that child sacrifice is not okay? Like, can we set that as a sort of a baseline, right? Can we just, like, can we agree that killing people in general, not, not okay, right? Not good. Killing children, definitely not okay. And... Killing children to curry favor with some deity, really not okay. Can we just like set that as a basic baseline? It seems reasonable to agree to that, right? Because I really feel like that's not, not too much to ask. But James, James got me in knots again. We are on the third Sunday of our Ordinary Faith season. And if you're new to OIC, we often have like series of themes that we're working in and working with. And we're now in a series which we have called Ordinary Faith. And this is the second Sunday on the letter of James, which is a letter we find in the, in the Christian scriptures, so the newer part of our Bibles um, all the way towards the end, if you open it, and there's all those little small letters in the end. Uh, one of them is called the letter of James. And we, we have been working with the letter of James, and this is the second Sunday. And I'm starting to feel like we might want to change the name of the series to Mikan's Problems with James. Because <laughs> that's, that's what I, I keep on fighting with him every Sunday, every week. Now, it's not unheard of for James to get a Lutheran all squirmy. OIC is a very diverse community of faith. We come from a lot of different backgrounds, a lot of different traditions of faith. And the tradition that I grew grew up in is that of the Lutheran denomination, which a lot of people are very familiar with in Norway. In Norway, it's the the biggest denomination. Uh, And the reformer Martin Luther, from whom the Lutheran tradition stems, famously called the letter of James a straw letter, and quite obviously he had some issues with it. And at the heart of those issues are a couple of verses that are actually part of today's reading. So I'm going to read with you, and we're actually going to read all of chapter 2. Well, it's not that big, but all of that. And then we'll look a bit at what those issues are. So this is what James write in the second chapter of the letter of James. My brothers and sisters, do not claim the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ of glory while showing partiality. For if a person with gold rings and in fine clothes comes into your assembly, and if a poor person in dirty clothes also comes in, and if you take notice of the one wearing the fine clothes and say, have a seat here in a good place, please, while to the one who is poor you say, stand here or sit, while, uh, sit by my footstool, have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers and sisters. 
Has not God chosen the poor in the world to be rich in faith and to be heirs of the kingdom that he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor person. Is it not the rich who oppress you? Is it not they who drag you into the courts? Is it not they who blaspheme the excellent name that was invoked over you? If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You do well. But if you show partiality, you commit sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. For the one who said, you shall not commit adultery, also said, you shall not murder. Now, if you do not commit adultery, but you murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged by the law of liberty. For judgment will be without mercy to anyone who has not shown mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith, but, has, but does not have works? Surely that faith cannot save, can it? If a brother or sister is naked and lacks daily food, or one of, and one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm, and eat your fill, and yet you do not supply their body, bodily needs, what is the good of that? So faith by itself, if it has no works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from works and I by my works will show you faith. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you senseless person, that faith apart from works is worthless? Was not our ancestor Abraham justified by works when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and by works faith was, faith was brought to completion. Thus the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. And he was called the friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Likewise, was not Rahab the prostitute also justified by works when she welcomed the messengers and sent them out by another road? For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is also dead. As usual, there is a lot here, and we cannot go into all of it. And that's going to happen whenever we're going into these whole pieces of the Bible because we want to get to know it, there's a lot here. And a lot of the discussion and the controversies and a lot of the commentaries around James chapter 2 have circled around verse 14. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but does not have works? Surely that faith cannot save, can it? And the discussion has circled around this verse because it is seen to be representative of what Luther, the reformer again, considered an inordinate amount of focus on works or deeds at the expense of a weakened understanding of the saving power of faith alone. And for Luther, that was a big thing. Faith alone saves. Now, considering the, the historical and the theological context that Luther was immersed in and was wrestling with, fighting with, it's not surprising that this became something of an issue for him. Even though, arguably, both Luther's reaction to James and also 
others' reactions to, to Luther are often overblown, especially the way this gets framed often in, as sort of James versus Paul, theological conflict of some sort. But you can Google all of this uh, if you want to, and you can spend as many hours as you, as you want nerding this out. There's plenty of stuff out there. That's not really what, what made me uneasy. I don't, I don't think that James is arguing that works or deeds are agents of salvation at the expense of faith, as he's often accused for. I don't think he's contrasting them in that sense as if he was putting faith and deeds in a fight cage and seeing who wins in this sort of all-or-nothing UFC battle. That's not what he's doing. I think James is arguing that faith and deeds are intrinsically interconnected and that because of that, we cannot really talk about someone's faith without talking about how that faith is expressed in the reality of lived life, in the stuff that we do and how we do it. And that's how we access and even talk about this. Which is why I got really upset with James for choosing the Akeda as an example. Yeah, it has a name. It has a name. And when, when an event or a story gets a shorthand name like that, you know it's a big deal. The Akeda. And we find the story of the Akeda in Genesis 22. And honestly, it's kind of a disturbing story. And it goes as part of the story of the patriarch Abraham. Abraham is called by God to go to a distant land. He goes, he is promised by God that he will father many children and will have amass great wealth and he will be the patriarch of a whole people, right? He will have as many children as the stars in the skies. Maybe, maybe you heard the story. And Abraham goes through his life and gets old along with his, life, with his wife Sarah. A lot of stuff happens there, but at one point he gets the child with the promise. Sarah miraculously in her old age gets pregnant. Isaac is born. All is good and well. And then God comes to Abraham as the story goes and says, Abraham, I want you to give me and offer me your son in sacrifice. In a holocaust, which means a whole burnt sacrifice. And that's Genesis 22. Abraham gets his son, no questions asked, walks for three days to this mountain on the way uh, when they're coming close, three days off, he tells his servants that are helping him carry the stuff, stay here, I'm going with the boy, we'll come back. And they go and walk in, the boy asks, or we don't know if he's a boy, we don't actually know Isaac's, there's nothing there about Isaac's age, but Isaac at some point is, hey dad, we got the firewood, we got the fire, uh, where's the sacrifice? <laughs> and Abraham is no God, will provide, comes all the way to this mountain, binds Isaac, means ties him up, puts him on the altar, is about to slaughter him. An angel stops him, says, don't. Now I know that you would go all the way from me. And a ram shows up. He kills the ram and sacrifices the ram instead. That's, that's the story. Yeah. And that's why it's called akeda. It means the binding, the binding of Isaac. And it's quite a unique Hebrew word that doesn't show many other places. Now, I knew all of this from before. I knew the story from Genesis. I had, I had read James, 
nothing of this was new to me when I went again to read James this week, but still I couldn't help it. I kept on thinking, why? Like, really, James? So many stories to pick from. And you go for the story of the patriarch willing to slaughter his own son as a sign of faith? Like, I don't think I'm okay with that, James. The child sacrifice, it turns out, is a no-no for me. And not only for me, though. Once you go read more on this, you find that the Akedah is one of the most discussed and poured over dilemmas of the Hebrew Bible. Not only in the Christian tradition, but also in the Jewish tradition, and in fact, also the Muslim tradition, because they also trace their ancestry all the way back to Abraham. And at the heart of the dilemma is not only what Abraham's willingness to engage with child sacrifice says about him, but especially what the narrative that God asked for such a sacrifice says about God. It's kind of a pickle, isn't it? How do you unravel that? So I spent some time digging into this historical, hermeneutical struggle with the Akira, meaning this this historical struggle with the story, with the biblical text, and with its interpretation. And I started with some relatively common Christian perspectives on this, and honestly, I found them lacking. Uh, Too many go along with an explanation that essentially sees the Akedah as a prophetic foreshadowing of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross. So that happened to give us an image to understand the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. Now, I have a couple of issues with this line of argumentation. It's a, to begin with, it's sort of a circular logic. It's overly attached to a very specific understanding of what happens on the cross. And especially, it implies that it's okay that something as horrible as this happened to someone in the distant past only because it benefits us as modern readers and understanding something about God that might mean something for us. In other words, it it seems a bit of a self-centered logic. Still, the notion of some prophetic connection between the Akedah and Jesus, I think it's fruitful. And what is more, I appreciate that the issue is being grappled with. It's being fought with. It's being discussed with. Now, another very common and quite old, actually, Jewish interpretation of the Akedah, which also had and still has its fair share of Christian adepts, is that it was actually, it's actually a story, this line of interpretation goes, it's actually a story about stating clearly God's opposition to child sacrifice. The reasoning behind this interpretation is that child sacrifice was actually a fairly widespread practice at the time of Abraham in the Near East ancient world. And this story, in this story, the child is, through divine intervention, substituted for a ram, for an animal. And that then becomes the practice of the ancient Israelites, sacrificing animals rather than children. That's the logic behind this interpretation. Now, there are some serious textual or some 
reasonable textual and historical contextual issues to this interpretation. So it's not really the magical bullet that I would want it to be. <laughs> uh, but again, I appreciate that the story is being struggled with. Now, this isn't supposed to be a lecture on the, on the Akeda, so I won't go into more of the other interpretations out there. But I do want to point out something really important that is easier to, to, to see and to understand and to realize when we consider this old rabbinic interpretation that I just mentioned of this story being essentially about God opposing child sacrifice. And that is that one of the main reasons, one of the main reasons why this interpretation comes about is that elsewhere in the Hebrew scriptures and in their oral traditions, you will find very clear and explicit condemnation of child sacrifice. And you will find that being understood as being a condemnation from the part of God. So you have the rabbis and interpreters of the law saying, okay, how do we hold these things together? You have this story. And then you have God saying that he opposes child sacrifice. And also, as I mentioned, the living practice of the ancient Israelites was to a very great extent of animal sacrifices and actually was, was so in quite clear opposition at one point, and especially in, in how they envisioned this time of Abraham, especially in opposition to one of the main religious expressions that involved child sacrifice, which was the deity of a de was the cult of a deity called Molech. And in this part of the Old Testament, Molech is the big baddie. He's the horrible god that makes people do horrible things. And Yahweh, the god of the Israelites, is putting them on another path. That's the context in which child sacrifice is also being directly opposed in other parts. Why is this important? Well, because it shows that the story of the Akedah, it's being wrestled with, fought with, not only from outside the scriptures, as we would say it, people commenting on what's written there, but also from within, in the pages of the text itself, in the history of the Bible itself. And this is also true of the Christian scriptures what we often call the New Testament, right? And we find perhaps our clearer example of this in the book of Hebrews, where the author of the book of Hebrews implies, he mentions and he talks about the Akedah as well, and he implies that Abraham was willing to sacrifice Isaac because he believed in God's power to raise him from the dead if he really had gone all the way through in the killing. That's the logic of the author of Hebrews. Now, I don't think that suddenly makes it okay, <laughs> right? Uh, but here's what's interesting. Why is this interpretation important for the altar of Hebrews? This idea that Abraham is willing to do it because he believes that even if he has to go through, God will resurrect Isaac from the dead. Why is that interpretation important for the altar of Hebrews? Now, I can't, of course, know for sure what was going on in the head. We don't even know for sure who the author of Hebrews were, was. But here's a very reasonable explanation in the context of the Scriptures. This is important because the early Christians of the first and second century were now 
witnesses to a story. They carried with them a story of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. They had seen and told of their Lord that had been killed in a most horrible way and yet rose from the dead. And they were also living in a context where life was really fragile. And death was around the corner every day. They were poor. They were part of a people living over the, under the, the oppression of an empire. And some of them were being actively persecuted and killed for their faith. In this context, they were doing the exercise of reconciling the tradition of faith that they inherited, the stories the scriptures, their faith in their Lord who they knew had died and resurrected and the reality of the life that they were experiencing. So they look at this old well-known story of the Akira and they say our faith in this moment in history and as experienced and as hoped for in our bodies, it says that not even death can stop the life that we have been given in Christ. Not even death can stop the life that we have been giving in Christ. What they are doing, in other words, is what in the tradition of scriptures is called an exercise of wisdom. Of wisdom. Of putting living faith, lived, lived life and experience, our inherited faith traditions and our images and our understandings of who God is and pulling all of, putting all of that in actual conversation so that they could figure out how to face the ethical, moral, and life challenges of their time and their place. How do we put all of this together and face the actual things we're facing, the actual questions? The actual dilemmas. That is an exercise of wisdom, which is way deeper than hunting for ready answers, right? That, I believe, is also what James is doing. He is engaging with the Akeda. That was a very common trope of faithfulness in the first century Jewish context. But he's doing that because he is concerned with how faith is lived out in his day and in his community. And in those he's writing to. I don't think that James is referring to the story of the Akeda to say that story has all the answers for today. He's referring to it because the story puts his community in conversation with the questions of their day that they were facing. Because here's the thing. Wanting to find a ready answer within scriptures and within our tradition of faith and, and thinking that that's a done package is often a way of avoiding our own responsibility of connecting faith to our bodies and our lived experiences in our own time and in our own context. So James brings up Abraham and he brings up Rahab, which is another bizarre story, by the way, and a weird choice. As the story goes, Rahab was a prostitute that lived in the city walls of Jericho. And when the invading forces of Israel sent scouts to check out the city, Rahab welcomed them. 
and hid them from the authorities and then send them safely back to their army. And then when the army comes and Jericho is raised to the ground, Rahab has her life spared because of her act of hospitality. Again, there's some hard, dubious ethics at play from a modern perspective. But be that as it may, and again, not minimizing the need to make those questions, but both Rahab and Abraham were people trying to figure out how what they had found about God affected how they lived in the challenges of their day, of their time, and of their place. And James' point is that's why and how we talk about them. Even if we struggle with them, it is because we can only talk about their faith through their lived lives, through their actions. We can't access it on some spiritual or purely philosophical realm. That's why all these ancient and modern commentators, including James, talk about these stories. Because they're joining in the wrestling. For James, this is the point. And I think that's what James is saying. To put it plainly, he's saying talking about faith apart from lived life is BS. Our way of living reveals the intimate faith we maybe don't speak out loud. Jesus had a similar point. Several places in the Sermon on the Mount, which you will notice if you were here several weeks, it's going to keep on coming up because James is mirroring the Sermon on the Mount in, in many places. But Jesus has a similar point when he says, where our treasure is, there our hearts will be also. Or when Jesus says, you can't serve God and, and, and mammon, money. You can say you're doing it, but we can see that that's not where your treasure actually is. Where your priorities are, where your heart is. That's also what John points out when he writes his letters and says that we can't argue that we love God and not love our neighbor. The way we're dealing with our neighbor reveals the intimate faith we actually hold to. So perhaps all that James is saying is, don't give lame excuses. And don't use your religious heritage as an excuse. Ask yourselves what's really going on in your lives. Ask yourselves what is really going on in the world. And ask yourselves what is really going on in your communities of faith. And let faith and life challenge each other for the sake of the kingdom of God. If I then go back to everything else that James is addressing here in this chapter, it is depressingly still current and still relevant. So perhaps I need to make some other questions. Perhaps I should ask, can we just agree that favoritism is not okay? Not in the world out there and not in our communities? That it's not okay that we aspire for the very things that destroy us as humanity? Can we just agree that inequality and poverty are not okay? In fact, can we just agree that poverty actually kills? 
kills grown-ups and kills children. And that inequality, which enforces and generates further poverty, has a hand in the killing. It doesn't help, says James, to play the role of the nice husband and citizen, but have a hand in murder. You're still part of the problem. But can we just agree that it's not okay that some people have to go naked and hungry while others steam in jacuzzis and eat foie gras? Now, the world is extremely complex. Don't get me wrong. Life is extremely complex. I'm not saying I have the answer. I do not. I'm not saying that James has the answer. I'm not saying it helps to go around feeling guilty for everything. But I am saying that our faith invites us to live with wisdom and to not stop engaging and fighting with these realities and how they manifest in our personal lives and our community lives. So in the least, can we just agree that we are not going to try and erase the tension just because we don't know the answer? And that we're not going to use our faith as a shield against these realities, but as a catalyzer for engaging with them for the sake of the kingdom and for the sake of each other. Can we agree that if we desire and cry for mercy over our lives, that we will also practice mercy? Can we agree that even as we pray for forgiveness, we will practice forgiveness? Can we agree that even as we pray for the presence of God in our lives, we will practice presence in the lives of each other? Can we agree that we will fight favoritism and practice inclusion? Can we agree that we will do our best to see and listen to the actual needs of our brothers and sisters and be there for them? Can we agree that even if we might not manage to do everything all the time and that we do need to recognize the limitations of our own resources, of our own strength, of our own physical, mental, and emotional health, but still that we will not stop caring and won't allow our caring to become nothing more than a theological platitude or something we sing about in church and say out loud, but it's not how we live. Can we agree, says James, that if the kingdom of Christ has indeed come, we can be part of it today not only with our songs, but with our bodies, with our resources, with our decisions. Now, none of this is easy. I don't think none of it was easy for these people James is writing to. Can we agree it's necessary? And can we dare to believe that it's possible? That our faith can actually have something to say and be in the world and in the lives we live that Christ can actually be present in how I meet the people around me. And this is so over, so all-encompassing, right? 
has to do with how we deal with our families, with our workplaces, with uh, kindness towards the people around us. It has to do with loneliness. It has to do with hunger. It has to do with despair. It has to do with cold. But this also means it is very, 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 very much real. Can we agree that if the kingdom of God has indeed come and that we somehow are part of it, that we can indeed be part of it today, not only with our songs, but with our bodies and with our lives. What this looks like, I guess we're going to have to figure it out together, right? That's the exercise of wisdom. That's the life of faith. That's the blessing of serving a living Christ. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you that you may know that he is gracious towards you and towards your neighbor. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and turn his face towards each and every one of you and so give you of his peace. So go in the peace of our Lord Jesus Christ and serve each other, serve the world, serve the Lord joyfully. Amen. Do you want to stay connected with us? Check out our website at oslointernational.church to discover more about our community, access additional resources, and join us in our faith journey. Don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.